Good morning, Penn Valley family. My name is Jason Carver. As you may have uh, figured out by now, I'm the son of Diane Carver and of Dale Carver, who has been enjoying the presence of Jesus for about 10 years now. Um, I am also one of the elders here at Penn Valley Church and have the privilege this morning of teaching God's word. Uh, and so if you've been with us over the last month or so, you know that at the beginning of September, we had begun a, a new series where for the next year, we are going to be looking through the story singular of the Bible by looking at the stories plural in the Bible. You see, there's 66 books that make up the Bible, 31,102 verses. And each of the stories contained within those 66 books and each of the stories contained within those 31,000 plus verses fit together to give us one ultimate story. In that story, there's one God, the Lord who created everything in this world, including you and I. There is one enemy, Satan, whose rebellion was a failure, but whose sole focus now is to take what God has made and ruin it. And that includes you and I. There's one problem, sin, which has corrupted the world, causing decay in everything in it, including you and I. There is one overarching theme to this story. And it's the theme of salvation, that God is not satisfied allowing his creation to stay in a permanent place of ruin, including you and I. And there's one hero, there's one king, there's one rescuer, his name is Jesus, who leaves his heavenly home to seek what is lost and to restore it. And as you may have guessed, that includes you and I. And he does this for one purpose, to restore all that God has made, including you and I, so that we may worship him and that he may receive the praise, the honor, and the glory that he alone is due. So, so far in the story, we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 that things started out really well. God made everything and he said it was good. In the case of man, he said it's very good. But it's not too long before the story takes a dark turn. As Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the garden, and they eat of the one tree God asks them not to eat from. Not long after that, we see the first murder, where Cain kills his brother Abel. And as sin and violence become so pervasive in the world that God created, he sends a flood as judgment for the impact that sin has had on what he made to be good. And yet, even after the flood, things don't change as man quickly returns to his sinful, self-centered ways, building a tower to reach to the heavens so that he, not God, but man, may make a name for himself. And yet, even in the midst of all that sin in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see a glimmer of God's grace at work. In Genesis 3.15, after the fall, 
we see a promise that God wouldn't leave his creation the way it was, but that he would send a rescuer to make things right. In Genesis 5, 3, after their one son murders the other, God blesses Adam and Eve with another son, Seth, to continue their lineage and the promise that he made that a rescuer was coming. In Genesis 6, 8, when sin continues to inflict tragedy upon tragedy in the world, God chooses one man, Noah, and his family to be spared and continue the promise that he had made. And then in Genesis 12, beginning with Genesis 12, after man continues his treacherous ways and builds the tower and God has to scatter him and confuse his languages, we're introduced to another man who will be shown God's grace so that God's promise can continue. And of course, that man is Abraham. And we're going to continue in his story this morning. So the glimpses of God's grace in Genesis 3 through 11 seem small, like a flickering candle in the dark night sky. But beginning in Genesis chapter 12 and carrying us through to what we'll be looking at today, God's grace is getting clearer, stronger, brighter, louder. God makes an audacious promise to this Abraham that he will make Abraham, who has no children, a great nation. Through all the families of the world will be blessed through him. And God would show that promise to be true in Genesis chapter 21 with the birth of Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac. And it would seem, as the story goes, that Genesis 21 would be a fitting end to Abraham's narrative in Genesis. But it wasn't. Those chapters set up the famous events that we're going to look at today in Genesis chapter 22. And with that in mind, I want to encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are pew Bibles right in front of you. You can find this story on pages 14 and 15 of those Bibles. As I was preparing for this sermon this morning, I couldn't help but think back about 30 years ago when I was in college. And it was a cold December morning, and I was heading to my friend Pat's house to study for finals. When I arrived, I found a curious sight. The windows in the apartment were all open. What I found out was that Pat's sister, Ellen, had become very sick, and the family was trying to aerate the house to get the germs out. It didn't actually work, because I wound up getting sick, so sick, in fact, that I wasn't able to take the finals we were studying for. And my professor, who was kind of an old school guy, was unusually gracious to me, and he said, you know what? Your grade's high enough that this final's not going to affect anything. So I wound up getting out of the test. Pat did not. And a few days later, when I was feeling better, I called him and I said, hey, how did it go? And he's like, well, to be honest, he's like, I cruised through that first page. I thought, wow, this is really easy. I'm going to do really well. But on his way up front to hand it in, he just happened to turn it over and realize there was a second side that he didn't know about. And on that second side, to make it worse, all the questions were ones that the topics were never covered in the class that semester. So Pat finished his work and handed it in. But before that test, he and I had about roughly identical grades in the class. Afterwards, not so much. Unfortunately for Pat, my professor's generous assessment that the grade on the final wouldn't be affected by it turned out to not be quite accurate. And to this day, that test is one that neither he nor I 
have forgotten about. Tests, whether they're at school, at work, at the driver's exam center, or at the doctor's office, can be quite nerve-wracking, can't they? Only a select few, and I would, to be honest, say really disturbed people like tests. When's the last time you heard a student say, you know, I really, really like school, but I wish they gave us more frequent and challenging tests? Never. And yet tests are important, or at least they should be. They let us know how far we've come, they measure our understanding of things, and they show us where we need help with. Today, we're gonna to look at one of the most challenging, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking tests ever administered. And it's administered by God himself in the life of Abraham. As we do this, I want you to look at four things with me. I want you to look at the significance of the call, the severity of the test, the see to it God, and the sacrifice of the lamb. So the significance of the call, the severity of the test, the see to it God, and the sacrifice of the lamb. Now, the difficulty with a story like Genesis 22 is that it's familiar to many of us, but the content is also unsettling. Familiarity can cause us to miss important points in the text because we think we already know the story. Difficult passages and concepts can cause us to check out, to gloss over parts of the passage that are hard to reconcile in our minds, and thereby we miss why they're there. So this morning, I want to encourage each of us not to fall into either of those traps. So let's take a look at the significance of the call, and this is really what serves as the backdrop for this passage. In order to understand it, we need to understand this call. So the significance of the call, call to God's people, can be found throughout the Bible. Abraham himself has received numerous calls in Genesis. As chapter 22 begins, we see aspects of Abraham's original call from Genesis chapter 12 wrapped up into this story. In Genesis 12, it says that he was told to go. In Genesis chapter 22, he's also told to go. In Genesis chapter 12, he's told to go somewhere that he doesn't know and that he's just gonna have to trust God. In Genesis chapter 22, he's told to go to a place that God will show him later. And again, he's gonna have to trust God not knowing where he's going and not being given many details. But most importantly, in each of these two accounts, he's asked to give something up. In Genesis 12, he's asked to give up his family, his land, his culture. In Genesis 22, he's asked to give up his son. So God says, listen, Abraham, I'm going to challenge the sources of significance and security in your life. Are you going to hold on to them, thinking that's what makes you have a good life? Or are you going to hold loosely to them and find your significance and security in me? Now, the reason this is important is because Abraham, who was called, isn't the only person who's called. You and I are called as well. And our response to the call is going to determine both our present and our future. Romans 8.30 tells us that those whom he predestined, meaning God, those whom God predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Hearing the call is part of God's work in our life. And Paul, who wrote those words to the church in Rome, continues on in another letter, Ephesians, with the same theme. And there he says, uh, he prayed first that the Ephesians would have their hearts enlightened to the hope which was their call, and he urged them to walk in a manner worthy of their call. It's the call that draws us to God and our relationship with him, and it's the call that keeps us moving forward in that relationship. You see, the call isn't done once we hear it initially. It continues to challenge and to shape our lives. Some of you may know the name Eric Little. He was known as the Flying Scotsman. And his story, in part, was captured in the 1982 film, Chariots of Fire, that won the Oscar that year. He was part of the 1924 Olympics, but he was known that year for the fact that he did not run his best event, which was the 100 meters, because it was held on a Sunday, and his conviction was, I shouldn't run on a Sunday. And there's a part in the movie that they get to that's probably been spiced up a little bit for the theatrical release, but where he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, while he's probably most famously known as an Olympic athlete, he was actually a missionary who recognized God's call to go to China. In fact, he would die there in a concentration camp during World War II. But he also recognized God's call to run and the pleasure that God derived from him listening to those calls. God calls Abraham, and that serves as the foundation for the unfolding story of Abraham's life and God's story. But it also serves as the unfolding foundation for his story in our life. So we need to recognize the significance of the call. Secondly, let's take a look at the severity of the test. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. You see, Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, gives us a clue that Abraham did not have when he was going through this. Moses tells us this is a test. God's up to something. This is a key piece of information if we want to understand this story. Now, notice the deliberate wording that God uses here. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Abraham was 75 years old when God called him to go to a land he didn't know. And he promised at that time, I'm going to bless you and make you the father of many nations. He's 86 when his oldest son, Ishmael, is born. So from the time God makes his promise for a son in Genesis 15, 4, he's somewhere between 75 and 85. For 10 years, he and Sarah waited. He initially thought that the servant in his home was going to be his heir. And then he and Sarah concoct this idea that he's going to sleep with her servant so that they can have this son that God promised. And he does. And she gives birth to a son. 
But God says, no, that wasn't my promise, Abraham. And so now Abraham has to wait another 13 years until God will say to him, this time next year, Sarah is going to bear you a son. So if you're counting along, that's 25 years between the initial promise and when, in Genesis 12 and when Isaac is born in Genesis 21. Now, how do you think that impacted Abraham's view of Isaac? Isaac became the center of Abraham's life. He was the one who God had promised all those years ago, who Abraham for a while thought wasn't coming and is now there. When our youngest son was born and was an infant, my wife and I were at Target. And we met a couple there and had a chance to talk with them who had had a little boy named Stephen. They were older. In fact, they were probably old enough to be on the younger end of grandparent age. And they had been told, you're never going to have children. You could see as they went up and down every aisle with that little boy in the cart how much they prized him and valued him because it was something they never thought would happen. And that's the way it would have been for Abraham. But even more than that, it's through Isaac that God promises Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation. So no Isaac, no heir. No heir, no promise fulfilled. That's why these next words, highlighted in yellow, must have felt like a heavy weight as they came down on Abraham's shoulders. Offer him there as a burnt offering. These words are heart-wrenching, they're troubling, and maybe as you're listening to them, they're infuriating, which is why we need to take just a little bit of time to understand this command. First, we need to see this command is unique. It's not asked of anyone else by God in the scriptures. Second, it's not a call to murder or child sacrifice as we would think about it. Those things were in fact practiced during that time by other cultures, including what would become Israel's neighbors. And God had, was very, very clear in his instructions, including in Leviticus 20, that this was an abomination to him to offer up children as a sacrifice to the gods. We also have to understand the idea of the burnt offering, which has already appeared in the story in Genesis and is going to continue and be a vital part of Israel's worship as a nation. And when people would come to give the burnt offering, there were three things that would have been in their mind. First, they had to give up something that was of significant value or cost to them. They had to recognize that they owed a significant debt because of their sin. And they had to acknowledge that the debt of sin required death. The death of something innocent that took their place. So when we put those together, we come to the last one that we have to understand. And this is perhaps going to be the most difficult for us as 21st century Western individualists. We have to understand the importance of the firstborn. For most of history, including in Abraham's time, and still in many cultures today, the individual does not have the highest value. The family does. People's hopes and aspirations are tied to their family's success and posterity, not to their own. As such, the firstborn would receive 
nearly everything and would be charged with ensuring the well-being and continuation of the family line. It's with this in mind that God is going to say through Moses in Exodus 13, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. So this is why, even though this sounds crazy to us, that it wouldn't have sounded crazy to Abraham. Because he would have understood that God was just and holy and that the forfeiture of the firstborn was a calling in of that debt. But you see, that doesn't make that command any easier in Abraham's case. In fact, it actually makes it even harder, even more severe, because Abraham has to wrestle on one hand with the fact that there is a debt, there is a reality of sin, and that God can call for Isaac's life. But God had also, decades earlier, said that through Isaac, he was going to bless Abraham and make him a father of many nations. So how is it that God could call Abraham to do this and still keep his promises? Well, that's going to lead us to the next point. So we've seen the, the call, the importance of the call, the significance of the call. We've seen the severity of the test. Now we have to see the see to a God. And this is really, I think, the heart of the passage in many ways. So if you've ever heard a teaching on this passage, you've probably heard somewhere along the line a focus on the importance of Abraham's obedience. And it sometimes, and I've heard messages like this, makes him sound super, superhuman in his declaration to obey God. He gets up early in the morning. He gets ready. It's showing his commitment to obeying God and calling us to obey just like Abraham is how it can be presented. Now, of course, Abraham is obedient. And in fact, two different authors in the New Testament, and maybe three, depending how you view who the author of Hebrews is, use this very story as an example of faith. Paul does it, and James does it. But I want to caution us to be careful as we read through this section, not to make it primarily about Abraham's obedience. And again, that was important, and I'm not in the least trying to downplay it. But there's a bigger story that's going on and unfolding that we could miss if we're not careful. And let me just give you an example. That passage where Abraham gets up early in the morning and goes. It could be that it was because of his desire to obey God. And of course, I think that was linked in. But what was God asking him to do to offer up Isaac? How do you think Abraham slept the night before? Do you think his head hit the pillow and he's like, man, I've never been so refreshed in my life when he got up? No. He knew what lied ahead. And so it could be that he gets up early in the morning because he just can't sleep, knowing what's coming. So let's look at the bigger picture. And as the story unfolds, we're going to see three little stories that are part of it. But notice one thing here with me. 
Do you see where it says there on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar? Do you see what God has done here? He's built in a journey to get Abraham to this point. He didn't say, go out and sacrifice Isaac right this minute. He's giving time before it happens. Now, Moses doesn't tell us why that is. But I want to ask you to put on your divine thinking cap for a minute and use your divine imagination. Have you ever had something in your life that you had to do, that you knew you had to do, but it was extremely difficult, and you rushed into doing it? If so, how did that turn out? Usually that doesn't work real well, right? So what is God doing? I think here he's giving Abraham an opportunity to process and ponder. And we're going to see how that plays out. He knows Abraham has questions. He knows that what he asked of Abraham wasn't some little thing. He knows there was a real struggle going on in Abraham's heart. Because remember, Moses has told us this was a test. What would you have done if you had a teacher or a professor who quickly went over some really difficult con uh, concepts in class, in the first half of the class, and then said, you know what, we're just going to take the test right now. How do you think you would do? How many of you would have done well in that situation? How many of you would have cried when you got it back? Right? And that would have been me. I would have been like, what? <laughs> what? God doesn't do that. He gives Abraham time. Why would he do that? Why is he testing Abraham? Is he testing him to see him fail? Or is he testing him to help Abraham's faith and trust in God grow stronger, even through this immensely difficult call? I would say the journey is intentional. And let's see how that works out now in the upcoming verses with these three little stories. First notice in verse 5 that Abraham tells his servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship and what? Come back to you again. So either here Abraham doesn't want Isaac to know what's going on. He doesn't want to be asked awkward questions like when they're walking, hey, dad, I heard you say to the servants that you'd be coming back, but you didn't say I would. What's up? Right? He's not looking. Is he looking for that? Is he looking just to avoid any more questions? Or is it that he believes that somehow, some way, God will work it out that Isaac will, in fact, come back with him? We're going to see in a little bit that, in fact, at some point in time, did cross Abraham's mind. Secondly, as we look at verses 6 through 8, we have this moment, the only moment in scriptures, by the way, where Abraham is seen talking to Isaac. And they're walking up the mountain, they're heading to the place where the sacrifice is going to take place. And you see Isaac say, my father, and Abraham's like, here I am, son. He says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now notice, Notice the tenderness of Abraham. He was the one who carried the torch and the knife. 
that would be used for the sacrifice. He didn't put that burden on Isaac. But Isaac asked this really tough question, and parents, you know what it's like, don't you? When kids ask questions that are really tough that you would rather avoid talking about, you see, the, the reality is Isaac's not one or two here, and that's one of the things we can have in our mind when we get to the part where he puts him on the altar. We think, oh, he's got to be really young. No, Isaac's old enough to understand at least to some degree what's happening here. And so his dad, like, where's the lamb? Notice what he says. Abraham says in response to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, again, either he's just trying to quickly move past that question because he doesn't want to have to deal with it, or he believes that God is up to something even though he can't see it. And he's going to be the one that provides for the sacrifice. And then thirdly, in verses 9 to 10, we're at the point now in the story, right, where we're all holding our breath. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. And you can imagine most of him probably wanted to take as much time as he could to do that, to put off what was being asked of him. And he laid the wood in order, and he bound his son Isaac. Now, most scholars believe Isaac was probably at least 10 and could have been older. And dads of sons, you know what this is like. When they're real young, you can wrestle with them, and there's no way they're going to defeat you. You can take them out on the basketball court, and you'll put them to shame. But something happens. You start getting older and slower, and they start getting older, faster, and stronger. And at some point, it changes. And they're the ones who can defeat you. So Isaac here could have pushed Abraham, who, let's be honest, he's over 100 at this point in time. He's probably not running marathons or hitting the gym at 6 a.m. to get the weight machines. Isaac could have probably ran away from him, but that's not what happens. Isaac allows him to do it, and you can see the scene unfolding, can't you? His, his quivering arm is up with the knife in it, and he's looking at his son, and the tears are flowing. And as that knife is coming down, if it was a movie, this is where all the music would stop. It would be completely silent as you wait to see what happens. And just before he plunges that knife into Isaac's chest, another character enters the story. It's referred here to as the angel of the Lord. Now, most scholars believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ. And out of the silence, Abraham, Abraham. And you can almost see him taking a breath. And he responds the same way as in verse 1. And he looks up. And he says, here I am. And the angel of the Lord says, stop. Abraham, this was a test. And I see and I know that you fear God because you were willing to go through the most difficult, heartbreaking moment of your life. Now, see, it wasn't as though God didn't know what the outcome would be here. Of course he did. He's omniscient. 
But what's happening here is he's not learning a set of facts, but there's a relational experience going on between he and Abraham. There's a connection because Abraham now gets it. He gets to see that God is the see to it God, that he is the one who provides. And this brings us to the final part of the story, the sacrifice of the lamb. So as Abraham's heartbeat is returning to sinus rhythm here, he looks up and he sees a ram that might have been there all along. But Abraham wouldn't have noticed it because what he was about to do. God had provided one to be there at that moment whose horns were long enough to get caught in the thicket. You see, Abraham had told his servants, the boy and I are going to come back to you. He said to Isaac, God is going to provide a lamb somehow, some way. And now, in a sense, his faith has become sight because he's seen God do it. God could have demanded Isaac's life, but instead he provides a substitute. And what is Abraham's response? Look what he does. It says, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it's said to this day on that mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. He calls that place Jehovah Jireh. It can be translated, the Lord will provide, or even more specifically, the Lord will see to. And notice what Moses does here. He connects to his readers now and says, even to this day, you guys know, because he's writing to the Israelites. As they're moving on out of slavery, and he's writing, and he says, you guys know this mountain, and you know we still call it the same thing. We're going to come back to that in just a second as we finish. So I just want to ask you a few quick questions. I know that was a heavy topic. How are you going to answer the call of God in your life? That's something that each of us has to wrestle with and deal with. Are you going to respond to, how are you going to respond to the tests that are coming? Or maybe already here in your life. How well do you see God's goodness and faithfulness in your life, especially during times of testing? So let's think back to this story for just a minute. Because after this dramatic moment, the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham a second time. And he says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Earlier I mentioned that Abraham was on a journey for three days. But in reality, Abraham had been on a journey for over 30 years with God at this point. And he had messed up big time in that period. Twice, he asked his wife to say she was his sister to get him out of trouble, but putting her in a compromised situation. He and his wife, after they thought God's not gonna show up and provide this son, decided to do it themselves. They were the first DYIers. All right, and they're like, no, we're gonna take care of this. This must be God's plan. And they have a son, Ishmael. And he will turn out to become the enemy of their true son, Isaac. 
You see, Abraham's attention now in this story has shifted away from himself and on to the Lord. To the point where the writer of Hebrews, this is the point I said we get back to in Hebrews eleven nineteen, says that Abraham was confident that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead if necessary on that mountain. What got Abraham up the mountain wasn't a deep-seated sense of obedience. He didn't call the mountain, I did it, or I obeyed God no matter what. He called that mountain, the Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it. Now, you and I have had a journey too, and we're at different places in that journey. And it's had highs and it's had lows. And we've messed up just like Abraham has. I want to encourage you this morning, let this story show you that your journey is God's way of establishing trust and confidence in him in your life. And that just as he was faithful to Abraham, he will be faithful to you. Now, of course, we're not just looking at this as an individual story. We're seeing how this story fits into the bigger story and moves that story along, and this is where we'll end. After the events of Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, we see the angel of the Lord call Abraham a second time, as we stated, and reiterate the promise that went back to Genesis chapter 12. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that King Solomon begins to build the temple of the Lord on the very mountain where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, meaning that Jerusalem was built on Mount Moriah. And it's there that God ultimately fulfills his promise made long ago to Abraham and shows that he is both just and gracious. You see, the problem of man's debt of sin was something God's people continued to wrestle with after this story of Abraham. In Micah 6, the Old Testament prophet Micah asks, what does the Lord require for sin? He says, shall I offer a one-year-old calf without blemish? Should I offer 10,000s of rams, 10,000s of rivers of oil, or even my firstborn child? The answer is clear, no. It's not Isaac, it's not the ram, it's not the Old Testament sacrificial system that's ultimately going to resolve the tension between God's justice and his grace. It's going to be Abraham's true and greater offspring, God's perfect son, Jesus, carrying the wood on his back up that mountain. But when the hammer comes down on the nails in his hands and in his feet, and when he gasps for breath and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unlike in the story of Isaac, there will be no response, only silence, no substitute. Jesus is the substitute. And that's why it would be through this, this moment as, as Paul looks back to this story and connects it with Christ, he would write those famous words in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?
Jesus is the greater Isaac. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thankful for your word and even heavy passages like this, God, because they point us to the one hero of the story. They point us to our neediness. They point us to a journey that you have us on, that you're using to shape us, to make us more like Jesus. You're giving us the opportunity to see you more clearly, just as you did with Abraham. And God, through this story, through what you did with Isaac, you would set up the greatest moment in history where your son would carry that wood on his back, where he would go up the mountain, but where he would be the substitute for us. And if you would do that, God, if you would not withhold your own son, how is it that you won't give us every good thing along with him? God, we know the answer is you will do that. You are doing that. You'll continue to do that. And to that, God, we praise you and thank you, asking you to give us a faith like Abraham's that sees you more clearly and trusts you more deeply. And we pray it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.